Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 20th of April, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely and uh, Debbie Evans. Well, it's good to be back, Mike. You have a good break, Brian. I had a very good break, and I'm pleased to say I got some sunshine and some alternative work in. Alternative work, right. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, did Boris get any alternative work in? Well, here's the BBC. Uh, Tory MPs welcome Prime Minister Party's apology as opposition voices anger. And, uh, well, did they voice anger? <laughs> well, Keir Starmer's response uh, was more pathetic than uh, Boris Johnson's response. So he was pretty much aiming to tug on the heartstrings uh, with a story of someone who wasn't able to visit his dying mother in hospital because he was doing the right thing. And of course, that story in itself is tragic, but it was the way that was being pretty cynically used, in my opinion, that was uh, pretty despicable. So Starmer not doing any better than Boris in this respect, but uh, uh, Boris gave what he described, Brian, as a wholehearted apology. Uh, for being fined for attending his birthday party and uh, and uh, in the cabinet room at Downing Street uh, and the other parties that he attended and encouraged uh, and so on. So uh, let's have a look. Uh, Boris to push ahead with India trip despite vote on lying about Partygate says the national. And this is because he had planned to go to India. Obviously, uh, Boris, uh, the Tory party, UK, the US, the EU, all very concerned that uh, India is not taking a stance against Russia at the moment. So he was heading over there to try and do something about that. The question is, will he go now or will he not go because of the pressure over Partygate? Uh, but look, I think uh, this is uh, for for you and Debbie and, and Vanessa to comment on as you see fit. I think this is the question uh, that we should be asking because while all this pantomime is going on in Parliament, uh, there's something being forgotten. And the question is this, if the chief medical officers for Scotland, if Neil Ferguson, if Dominic Cummings, Margaret Ferrier, who's former SNP MP, Robert Jenrick, Bob Seeley and Boris Johnson all ignored the lockdown rules, then how dangerous did they believe SARS-CoV-2 to be? And I think this is the fundamental point. If we ignore this question, which is what is absolutely being done in the House of Commons, uh, they're all worried about uh, whether Boris lied to the House of Commons or not, and everybody is ignoring this this question. Um, then the question follows, was lockdown necessary? Uh, was the reorientation of the NHS and the deaths that followed from that, were they necessary? Uh, and so on. So I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, I think it's a very good question. It's the right question to ask. My guess is that they knew that they were peddling complete lies about a a pandemic and the lockdown wasn't needed, certainly not in the form that they imposed it. Um, but of course, he's mocking the whole nation in, in doing this. It is not simply a drinks party. It's showing that he's duplicitous. He's mocking the nation. Um, he's a man who's already betrayed his family, isn't he? So will he betray the country? Absolutely. And now we're supposed to have confidence in Boris Johnson as he deals with Ukraine or goes off to try and convince the, uh, you know, the Indian politicians that they should be against Russia. The man is not fit for office and the sooner he's out, the better. Well, the sooner the lot of them are out, the better, in my yeah. opinion. But anyway, uh, let's have a look at this then. Ukraine says Russia is uh, launching attacks on Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, and of course, this is reorientation, apparently, of uh, Russia away from Kiev to uh, uh, this part of Ukraine and focusing on this part of Ukraine. Um, and well, we'll see how that goes. Uh, of course, very little in the media about what this part, particular part of Ukraine has suffered since 2014. 
at the hands of the Ukrainian military and the various brigades. And you've, you've got to go to quality alternative media to find out what's actually happening. And we'll be talking more about that in forthcoming UK column news. Uh, but I thought this article was interesting. This is in The Economist. It's in the latest issue of The, Com uh, the Economist, which I think comes out on uh, the 22nd. Um, and uh, so the headline is, what is at stake in Ukraine? Um, and they're, uh, they're saying, you know, that a worldview is at, st at stake. And the question then is, whose worldview is it? They say, whoever prevails on the battlefield will win a fundamental argument about how the world should work. Uh, but they then go on to say that off the battlefield, uh, this is an argument that the West is losing. Uh, most of the emerging world, as they describe it, uh, either is in support of Russia over what they're doing in Ukraine, uh, or they are at least neutral on it. Um, and uh, many nations on the in, sorry view the West as being decadent, self-serving, and hypocritical is what they say. And they say that this is a stunning rebuke. Um, so they say that they uh, required the use of their uh, economist intelligence unit to, to, to work out that the uh, General Assembly vote uh, in which 141 countries voted for a resolution condemning uh, Russia's military operation in Ukraine, um, of which five voted against and 35 countries abstained. Uh, that that wasn't a vote for Western policies, uh, but that, in fact, only a third of people of the world's people live in countries that have condemned uh, Russia and imposed sanctions. Uh, yet the rulers of other countries worry that the West is free to act as judge, jury and executioner. They will get su summary justice, uh, that it's a poisonous cocktail of legitimate grievances and exaggeration, all laced with a lingering resentment of colonialism. Uh, and so they go on to say that uh, uh, the world Putin espouses would be even more decadent and self-serving uh, and amoral than the one that exists today. So uh, I just wanted to get uh, welcome you all to the program, Vanessa, and get your, your thoughts on that uh, little diatribe. Well, I think until until that last section, that, that was pretty accurate. I mean, um, I think it's 4.5 billion of the world's population are effectively either abstaining or supporting the Russian mission in Ukraine. And that, of course, includes, as you mentioned, all the nations that have been under attack by empire, US or UK or EU um, for decades, if not centuries. So Latin America, African countries, Middle Eastern, uh, Iran, China, Pakistan, India. Um, but I think uh, the, the, the concept that a world um, post, let's say, the, the weakening of US empire, and that I will always include UK empire, is going to be more decadent and more debauched is, is a little <laughs> far-fetched to say the least. I mean, the existential war that we've discussed is uh, the Russian battle against that dystopia that the West would see created in the world. Yeah. Well, I couldn't agree more with that, uh, Vanessa. This is a real clash of, of uh, ideas now and where the, where the world is heading. Um, I find it amazing that if I look at uh, information to try and find out what the truth is about the relative uh, policies, you see pure aggression coming out of NATO and the European Union. There's no question of that. We'll be having a look at weapon supplies in a moment. Um, the Russians really, there's nowhere for them to go now. So it's going to get extremely interesting to see what happens. And of course, China and India 
seem to be supporting the stance. It's not really just Ukraine. It's the stance against uh, a rules-based international order run by the banking elites of the West. Um, so yesterday, the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, was uh, speaking at the defense ministry board in, in Moscow, and of course, and uh, this is what he had to say. Consistent implementation of the action plan by the defense ministry is aimed at further developing the army and the navy providing them with advanced military equipment. So what kind of advanced or what's he talking about here? Uh, so there, he's saying that this year, 30 organizational events will be held in the Southern Military District. Uh, over 3,000 advanced weapons and items of military hardware will be supplied and the construction of 170 military infrastructure facilities will be built and put into operation. So, uh, I mean, I get he's talking about uh, um, hypersonic uh, and other advanced weaponry here. Uh, that uh, Russia uh, intends to deploy? Intends to deploy, uh, Mike, and is capable of deploying because there's some pretty amazing debate which has come up over the last few days uh, about the fact that the West doesn't seem capable of producing weapons that we believe you know, it's easily capable of producing. So let's just come into this segment by having a look at a BBC headline. Here we are, Ukraine war. Kiev's allies pledge more weapons to help win the war. So remember what we're doing here, we're putting in weapons and munitions for peace, apparently. This is how the uh, BBC describes it. But they've been piling in the weapons, the West has been piling in the weapons. But oh dear, something is uh, wrong in the background and it's taken uh, Bloomberg to start pointing this out. Here it is, Ukraine war is depleting Americans, America's arsenal of democracy. Well, I'm going to have a snipe at that headline because, of course, that's as bad as weapons for peace. But weapon, uh, sorry, Western allies face a choice, send more weapons to Kiev or save their stockpiles for their own defence. And of course, this is coming down something key. We've seen Ben Wallace um, gaily saying that he's going to send thousands more anti-tank weapons to Ukraine. But at the same time, we know that this is putting huge pressure on UK's weapons stocks. But the same thing is happening in Germany and indeed in America. So just have a look at this and this article. And this has been verified. So these are correct statistics. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, told Congress that the West had delivered 60,000 anti-tank weapons and 25,000 anti-aircraft weapons to Kiev. The Pentagon is now laying plans to rush additional artillery, coastal defence drones and other material to Ukraine. 60,000 anti-tank weapons. Well, there's no, nowhere near that number of, of tanks in, in the theatre or operations. So Ukraine is just swallowing up weapons. What are they doing with them? Well, of course, they're not being used properly. And this fits with the fact that uh, Russia is now saying the trouble is that the professional army of Ukraine is being depleted. Mm. And we're now down to reservists who do not know how to use the weapons they're being given. But is this sustainable? Well, apparently not, because if we come back to Bloomberg, um, Pentagon official says that Kiev is blowing through a week's worth of deliveries of anti-tank munitions every day. I think that's a gross understatement. It's also running short of usable aircraft as Russian airstrikes and combat losses take their toll. Ammunition has become scarce in Mariupol and other areas. I believe that's because the supply lines are now being strangled by the Russians. Um, 
American economic leadership is no longer based primarily on manufacturing, excuse me, shortages in machine tools, skilled labor and spare production capacity could slow a wartime rearmament effort. The US can't quickly scale up production of Stinger missiles for Ukraine because the workforce needed to do so, quote, no longer exists. And this one, American stockpiles and key weapons are smaller than one might imagine, partly because of production constraints and partly because of the Pentagon's roughly 750 billion budget goes to manpower, healthcare and things other than bullets and bombs. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, of course, this is incredible, isn't it? Because the Americans have got a vast military budget. Uh, but the reality is here, we're now starting to see the failings of the the US in supplying arms to Ukraine and the EU countries the same. Vanessa, I don't know whether you'd like to comment on that, but a very interesting, we're now starting to see that the um, the American giant is not as strong as it likes to think it is. Well, I think another interesting um, perspective that I just wanted to add that I'd heard um, here in Greece in the last couple of days, and I haven't had time yet to go through Greek media to double check it, but there's nothing about it in, in Western media, but that um, the Greek islands, particularly in the Aegean, have um, been forced to surrender their weapons for use in the Ukraine. Now, of course, what does this mean? That leaves them very vulnerable to Turkish military occupation um, in Turkish interest to secure the oil um, in the Aegean, which has been an ongoing um, point of conflict between um, Greece and Turkey. Of course, historically also there has been um, always conflict between uh, Greece and Turkey and obviously Cyprus as well. But th that I just found very interesting. So, you know, the war in Ukraine is is having ramifications uh, globally. It seems, yes, and it, it is emptying every country of their stockpiles. Mm. Uh, and it's causing economic problems because, of course, all of the munitions cost money to produce. So the economic knock-on effect is vast. Well, let's talk about the subject of uh, truth versus propaganda. And we're going to use a little bit of black humour initially to kick off this segment. Um, but if you're bored of the truth, fed up with the facts, and you need more biased news content, uh, you should tune in to the BBC's later latest Ukrainian propaganda game, which is called Zelensky Says. Uh, we're not joking about this. Zelensky Says, it's a, a multi-million viewer game. It's vast. Uh, here's some figures. We'll talk about these figures in a minute. 438 million viewers for BBC News, 351 million viewers for BBC World Service, and 137 million viewers for Global News. Now, that data has come from the BBC itself and a lady called Elizabeth Shaw. We'll be having a look at her in a minute. But how does this propaganda machine work? Well, you need a good war as the playing board, of course. And uh, this is the game, Zelensky said, similar to Simple Simon says, of course. Uh, Ukraine is apparently a democracy. Uh, we should forget anything about the Nazi far far right and the Azov battalions, because those are, are good. They're bad, but in this case, they're good, apparently. Uh, we should forget all the Ukrainian brutality in the Donbass and associated uh, regions. Russia has committed war crimes. Russia has used chemical weapons. Um, Ukrainians 
saying we've got to send more US, UK, EU mercenaries. And of course, the Ukraine needs those weapons that we've just shown on screen, plus money, plus other economic support. Now, this is the merry-go-round, and you've got to uh, do your homework. So don't just take what the UK column is saying today, but you need to have a look at Suspilny. This is the UK uh, media organization, which of course says it's independent. But where did it come from? Well, it was set up with the help of the BBC's charity, BBC Media Action. Um, they were part of the trail for putting in the money and the know-how. And so anything that's coming out of Ukraine at the moment from the government is actually coming from a seed of the BBC. And let us remember that that was supported by these organisations, DW Academy, um, the UK government via the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office uh, and the EU. So Zelensky says whatever he says is trumpeted back out by the BBC. So, Mike, is it Zelensky says or is it the BBC says there is no different because the BBC and the British government are running the propaganda arm of Ukraine. And if you look at their own material, you start to see the detail of this. This is BBC Media Action's own statements here. And they've got Yaro Lodjin, head of television from the Ukrainian state broadcaster. He says that all our independent monitoring shows that our news products are considered amongst the clearest, most independent and non-biased in Ukraine. Fascinating statement, Mike, that their independent monitoring of themselves says that they're independent. Well, of course, if BBC monitoring was providing that service, that would be independent. Uh, OK. <laughs> Except and... <laughs> it wouldn't, because, of course, it was BBC in the first bit. But anyway. Absolutely. And I'll just put this up on the bottom of the screen. This is straight off BBC Media Action. Just make sure uh, people know that what we're telling is correct. BBC Media Action has worked with UAPBC on training and newsroom production funded by the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. And it's talking about newsroom modernization funded by the European Union, conducted in partnership with DW Academy. So there's no misunderstanding what's going on here. I'm just going to say, Vanessa, this is in your face. There is a vast propaganda operation running. There is no difference between what comes out of Ukraine and what comes out of the BBC. Uh, all designed to deceive that vast hundreds of millions of viewers worldwide who are mistaken to think that the BBC is a trustworthy news source. It's outrageous, really. I, I don't know how to describe this. Well, I mean, the entire uh, Syria media complex has effectively just uprooted and moved to um, Kiev, as far as I can work out. And I'm wondering if they're offering free cocaine with the what Zelensky says game. Uh, quite possibly. Well, let's <laughs> rub let's rub it in. Here's DW Academy with a report from a few days ago. Uh, uh, sorry, a couple of weeks ago. Ukraine's public broadcaster is saving lives, apparently. Just like the vaccine. Uh, just like the vaccine. UK, <laughs> Ukraine's public broadcaster is saving lives. And uh, the key bit is that here is this independent uh, media, which, of course, we know it isn't independent either of the European Union or the BBC or the British government. But apparently it's saving lives. How is it doing that? Well, uh, I'm not too sure by the propaganda. 
Uh, but of course, um, it is encouraging the West to pump in those weapons of peace. And if we take this a little bit further, uh, on the BBC News site this morning was the little window talking about maps. Now, we've talked about these on um, UK column before, but we're going to go in a little bit deeper. Here we are, BBC in maps, Russia begins a new offensive in Ukraine. And when you get into the article, there's a variety of maps of different um, scale and complexity. But this is what caught my eye. To indicate which parts of the Ukraine are under control by Russian troops, we're using daily assessments published by the Institute for the Study of War. We've talked about that organization previously, but now we've got a new one, the American Enterprise Institute's Critical Threats Project. Uh, I had no idea what that was, but it was pretty easy to find out. It's a public policy think tank dedicated apparently to defending human dignity, expanding human potential and building a freer, safer world. The moment I read it, my, my brain said to me they're doing the exact opposite. But apparently the work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, are American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. So this is all about preserving American power and hegemony in the world. Um, this is what you've been talking about, Vanessa, but now we can see the BBC fully in bed with it. Have a look at the people. Well, you can't really, because the only way was to take a video. Carlyle Group is top of the list there. And what have we got? Hedge fund after hedge fund after corporation. Apparently, all of these people only go to work each day in order to save the world and help the poor and the hungry. I don't think so somehow, but uh, we encourage viewers to have a look yourself. That's uh, one level. If you go into the National Council, we have no idea who these people are, just no idea. Who are they? What are their interests? What are their financial connections? Are they independent? I'm having to use a video because there's so many. And we're going to say, well, why are these people, uh, who are these people and why is the BBC in bed with them? Well, we can't answer the question directly, but we did manage to find this lady. Now, I'm going to stress, we're not saying that she's done anything wrong. We're just going to say, what is she doing with her other colleagues in this organisation? So let's have a look at Elizabeth Braw. And um, she's into research. Uh, sorry, let's bring this up. She's written an article, The United States Needs a BBC. The Beeb's influence is rising stateside, revealing a hunger for nonpartisan news. A bit of a smile on your face, Mike. It's difficult to read this with a straight face. America's own network should take notice. Well, I'm going to say, could this be the BBC's reason it's so interested in these people that we've got a circular uh, pat on back system running? Well, if we look at the lady, here's the figures. In July 2020, the BBC re released some remarkable numbers. In the previous 12 months, 438 million people had tuned into BBC News, 351 million to BBC World Service and 137 to the uh, BBC Global News. So that's where we got those statistics from. 
Um, but have a look at this. The United States still dealing with the aftermath of years of slanted information should take note. What the country needs, it may be, is public service news. Uh, Vanessa, I'm going to come back to you on this. This is frightening stuff. The idea that uh, you wipe out the uh, biased media in America, which is clearly biased in lots of ways, but at least it's not one unit. And we replace American media with a, a version of the BBC. This is, this is propaganda on a scale that's never been seen before. Well, it's a clear indication of the control that, let's say, the MI6 has over um, the information that is going to be released to global publics in the future. And of course, we know from, from Syria and even from Ukraine that the British intelligence agencies are the masterminds behind much of the, um, the media, PR, um, even the international justice um, sort of paradigms that are being presented to us from within these conflicts. Yeah. Well, we'll finish off a um, little bit on this lady's CV, just to, uh, just to uh, let our viewers and listeners know a little bit about her. But she's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on defense against emerging national security challenges such as hybrid and gray zone threats. That all sounds pretty murky to me. Uh, Mike, but if you get into this, her experience, all of a sudden she's in more things than you can possibly imagine. So we've got the Centre for Information Resilience UK. We need to have a look at them. The National Preparedness Commission. I'd never heard of those. Foreign Policy, RUSI, Atlantic Council. This lady is truly remarkable. So we're not saying she's done anything wrong. We would like to know what she is doing because it's not clear from what we're able to read. Uh, but if um, our viewers are interested in the UK National Preparedness Commission, uh, this is them advertising themselves, apparently formed after failures in UK's COVID response. Um, very difficult to contact them. You've got to go through a box and an email. I've no real idea who they are, who appointed them or what they're trying to do. But I'm going to say I didn't like the look of it. Yes. Now, Vanessa, uh, let's come on to the issue of uh, reporting from Ukraine, because uh, there are some independent voices uh, operating in Ukraine. Some of them have been featured on this program uh, before, um, but one of them appears to have gone missing. So do you want to just introduce us to, uh, to who this is? Um, basically, this is Gonzalo Lira. Um, he's a Chilean national who sort of really found himself in Kharkov in Ukraine when uh, the Russian uh, special mission began in, in late February. He's been reporting from on the ground, uh, really at great risk to himself, because Kharkov is effectively controlled by the Nazi Azov battalions and various brigades associated with that battalion. And since um, Friday last week, uh, he's gone dark in the sense that he was supposed to be on the George Galloway show. Um, he didn't show. Uh, he was supposed to be communicating with journalist Dan Cohen. Um, again, he didn't show. And Dan Cohen has reported um, that his uh, WhatsApp messages have been read since his disappearance. So someone is clearly reading them 
and deleting them, according to a later tweet from Dan Cohen. Um, and so effectively, uh, initially people believed that it might have been because the internet was not working uh, in Kharkov, but then other people were, were later reporting that the internet had come back on and yet still um, nobody had heard from Gonzalo. And of course, um, that leads us into what might have happened. Um, I, I don't know if you want to play the video of uh, Gonzalo actually talking or if you want me to talk about what this article um, well, did effectively. Well, I mean, I mean, he, he uh, has been uh, clearly talking about uh, what's been going on in Ukraine from the ground. Mm. Uh, and this mm. has clearly upset some people. So so the the, uh, mm. the image that we had on screen there, if we can just bring that back on screen. Mm. Um, this is from the Daily Beast. And mm. I have to say, this, the headline on this is how a sleazy American dating coach became a pro-Putin shill in Ukraine. Mm. I read this article, and, and you're saying, Vanessa, <laughs> the article has actually been toned down slightly since its original version. But this I was, probab so, yeah. this was probably the worst hit piece that I have seen on anyone uh, in any of the Western media at any time, including what we're already I include what were already pretty disgusting hit pieces on you and and others, but you in particular. So, you know, what are your thoughts on the fact that that, that a, a mainstream media outlet is publishing material like this? Well, I mean, effectively, you know, this is weaponization of the media against uh, independent media and activists who are reporting um, a counter a narrative to counter the, the 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 legacy media narratives, particularly in Ukraine, but equally previously in Syria and and in all the other kind of war arenas. Now, this article, I agree with you, is is absolutely disgusting. I mean, this came out in March. Gonzalo Lira himself put out a video saying that if he disappears, then he lays the blame at the Daily Beast and the author of this article. The article, um, I have to say, also attacks um, Gonzalo for his stance, for his COVID stance. Obviously, he's, he's anti-vaccination. Um, it sort of relates him to QAnon and Trump, which is the typical far-right framing. Um, he attacks, as you say, his his sleaze, his misogyny. And I'm, when I'm saying that this is the framing of the article, I'm certainly not confirming anything that was in that article. Various independent media have reviewed the article and looked into the so-called experts that were pulled in to speak against uh, Gonzalo. And, and they are pretty um, suspect and compromised themselves which is very similar, of course, to the kind of Olivia Solon Guardian type attacks on, on myself and Eva Bartlett and other people that were reporting um, on, the, on the war against Syria. Um, so we shouldn't really be surprised. But, but I think the, the, the frightening thing here is that we really are seeing very clearly the weaponization of media um, against individuals and effectively the doxing and putting at risk of those individuals. Right. So uh, I just want to say in the chat box, somebody said, don't forget about the attacks on the likes of uh, Mike Eden and so on. I, I, I just want yeah. to make this clear. I think there's a very distinct uh, escalation between uh, an attack on Mike Eden living in Europe, uh, on us in the UK, and you 
in Syria, effectively a war zone, and him in Ukraine, absolutely a war zone, right? There's a difference there because this is because if if he has come to harm, uh, this is you know the, the fact that they have published this attack in the way that they have has encouraged that harm, uh, and yeah. that is something that goes way beyond the criticism, justified or not, of any individual or organisation in a Western country which is not in a war zone. Mm, absolutely. Totally agree. Okay, well, look, uh, let's uh, let's move on and look at the author of this um, this <laughs> article, and this is Mark Hay. Mm. Well, I mean, I think it's important to, if, if people um, should read this Daily Beast article, because it is absolutely disgusting. Um, the author, as you say, is a Mark E. Hay, who writes for um, uh, media organizations like Vice, which is known to, to effectively... Um, be a mouthpiece for, for neoliberal um, state policy. Um, the Daily Beast and a, and a huge number of, of other um, compromised media outlets. But let's look at what he's mainly, um, his primary beat at the moment. So bear in mind, he, he, he um, criticized um, uh, Gonzalo Lira for his misogyny, for, for being... Um, um, what is it? A, a, a consultant on um, on sex, basically. But I mean, just as just for an exercise, I looked at the articles that this Mark guy has written in in recent months in 2022 and 2021. So <laughs> let's start with penis shortening devices that alleviate painful sex are on the rise. You can have a great sex life with genital herpes, the private lives of straight men with sugar daddies. I have inflammatory bowel disease. Here's how it affects my sex life. Um, I won't carry on, but people can see the, the list if they pause uh, the video. So this is someone who can hardly be described as um, a political heavyweight in journalism. And I think what the, the important section to take out of the Daily Beast article, Mike, is um, this, which effectively um, what they admit is that they have given the information in the article to the Ukrainian government, so we have to assume to the SBU, to the um, security agencies. Um, Gonzalo on his actual Telegram channel pointed out that in before the article was published, he received a 13-page email and in the first page, um, Mark Hay told him that if you would prefer to send these to your attorneys prior to responding. So clearly, from the offset, this was going to be a hit piece and a piece that would effectively dox Lyra to uh, the authorities in an area that is infested and controlled by um, the Nazi battalions, known Nazi battalions. I mean, I'm not exaggerating this. Then if we come on to another so-called journalist who's operating inside Kharkov, um, who was the first, I believe, to publicize the fact that uh, Gonzalo had allegedly been arrested by the Ukrainian secret services in Kharkov. Um, now, she uh, frames him again as a Russian saboteur. So she effectively puts his life at greater risk by claiming that not only is he an independent journalist, she claims that he's Chilean Russian spy. 
he's a Russian saboteur. So this language in itself is going to um, frame him to the Ukrainian security services. And she is embedded um, in the same area that he was reporting from. Now, people might say, well, okay, who is she? Um, and what influence is she, he, I will say now, going to have? So let's have a look at Sarah Ashton uh, Cirillo. She calls herself a journalist. Um, she is a transgender. Um, and she's based, as I said, uh, in Kharkov. But there is a lot more uh, to Sarah Ashton or Sarah Ashton Cirillo than meets the eye. If we move on um, to, to the next image, this is taken from a Daily Beast article um, from 2021, where one of the pictures there demonstrate that um, she changed from uh, Michael John Cirillo to Sarah Ashton Cirillo, and here she is posing in front of an Obama change poster um, to reinforce that fact. But let's look at the, the Daily Beast article. The headline, um, this undercover operative says she recruited the Proud Boys for the GOP, uh, which of course is the Republican National Committee. Now I'm also going to just read very quickly the, the kind of tagline of this article. So trans poker player, she was previously a high level uh, poker player and progressive in inverted commas, who went undercover and cozied up to right-wing extremists, a state Republican party desperate to see Trump win. So this was in 2020. Um, Vegas-based GOP consultant and the Proud Boys, who are designated a far-right paramilitary group who were allegedly involved in the so-called January 6th Capitol attack, which is another subject altogether. Um, <clears throat> so effectively, what we learn from that um, is that Sarah Ashton Cirillo acted or embedded herself in these uh, alleged far-right sectors um, in order to uh, expose them and to expose their plot to flip the election, particularly uh, in the Nevada GOP, towards um, a Trump victory. But if we move on to a later article that came out um, one, I think, two months after the Daily Beast article, we see there liberal trans activist Sarah Ashton Cirillo reflects on the FBI investigation of her Trump loyalist opponent, threats against her, and the book. Of course, she manages to write a book about her time undercover, which was extremely successful. Um, it also then propelled her to become um, a, a candidate for Nevada City Council where she ran um, against uh, a Trump supporter, Michelle Fiore. And effectively, what happened was that the FBI used the information that she had gathered during her um, undercover operation as a journalist um, to discredit uh, Michelle Fiore and a number of other Republican um, um, activists and, and politicians at the time. Um, my reaction to this, um, and it's pure speculation, but to me, what it strikes me as, considering that she is now again embedded with far-right ultranationalists and Nazi elements in Ukraine, is that she is effectively 
far right. She is a Nazi supporter. And in my view, the FBI pressured her into providing this information and perhaps acting as an informant. But when I actually looked into her history, I found that she'd also been in Ankara in Turkey in 2012 and later again in 2015 with connection to um, the Syrian conflict. Um, she'd also been involved in Haiti, in China, in Panama, in Argentina, with UN missions in a number of these countries. So this is actually not a, a kind of I'm not saying she's particularly intelligent, but she's not a low-level operator. She's someone that has clearly been weaponized throughout her um, career, if, if you want to call it that, for some time. Um, and then if we come on to her pretty disgusting tweets, which kind of mirror the language that um, Hay used in his Daily Beast article, uh, here she is effectively completely dehumanizing uh, Russians as orcs. Um, if you fight for the war criminals from Russia against Ukraine, you are an orc, a pig dog, an animal, definitely not human. So this is blatant dehumanization of anyone that is speaking out against um, the Ukrainian regime, Zelensky's regime, which we can't forget has disappeared a huge number um, of activists and journalists and even uh, political parties like, for example, the Communist Party, which we'll come on to. So let's see who she's effectively defending and who she's embedded with this time. Um, Alexei B is uh, the boatman, one of the most prominent members of um, <clears throat> the Azov Battalion. The boatman crew, of course, were the brigade which were present in um, Basho, where, where the alleged uh, crimes were carried out by the Russian army, despite the fact that they had already um, withdrawn from the area. So we see here a pretty disgusting um, mockery of Gonzalo Lira's plight. Um, on, on the left-hand side, he's saying, if anyone knows where Gonzalo Lira is, please make a single bicep pose. Um, below, he's um, retweeting someone who's basically saying, we don't know for sure if he's dead. They might still be torturing him. And on the right is the Kraken symbol. Kraken, which uh, is translated as crab, um, is one of the Azov battalions uh, in Kark operating in Kharkov and the battalion that allegedly arrested um, Gonzalo Lira, or captured, I should say. He then goes on to say the irony of Gonzalo Lira, a Chilean being caught by a guy with the call sign Chile, is hilarious. And he then uh, publicly states that let's hope the beheading pops up on Telegram soon. I mean, what is extraordinary here, and it's just occurred to me, is the number of Twitter accounts that are being um, disappeared and, and cancelled um, that are, uh, you know, very professionally speaking out against Ukrainian propaganda and speaking, even Scott Ritter speaking on a military basis about the war in Ukraine, they're being cancelled. Yet this guy, who is clearly calling for the beheading um, of an independent Chilean national who's been reporting from Kharkov, is allowed to stand. And, you know, as if you want any further proof, here is Sergei Boatsman uh, Kuratik of the Azov Battalion, so the same guy, who beheaded Shamil Odomanov uh, for being Dagestani in a murder video from 2007. So certainly not... Um, an innocent Nazi. 
then we go on, you see Sarah Ashton Cirillo now leading a campaign against another independent journalist who's who's based in Donbass, but we can't, you know, we can't rule out the fact that there are still uh, sleeping cells even in Donbass. So Patrick Lancaster is still at risk, as are all the journalists that are operating either in Donbass uh, Donbass or uh, in Ukraine and, and trying to provide some kind of balance or, or, or um, truth on, on this actual uh, conflict. Um, those include uh, Pablo Gonzalez, who now has been um, disappeared for 50 days. He was arrested in uh, Poland. Um, the Twitter Free Pablo Gons is uh, the account to go to, to to follow the appeals for his release or even for any information about his whereabouts. Um, I will uh, follow this up with an article on the extraordinary number of journalists and activists and, as I said, Communist Party members that have been targeted and disappeared, executed, um, imprisoned, tortured by the Zelensky regime. Of course, this is... What is extraordinary is we're talking about this on the day that journalists have been forbidden entry to Julian Assange's extradition uh, trial in the UK. And while uh, Boris Johnson's um, regime is calling for press freedom, yet under Zelensky's regime, we're seeing the systematic disappearance, torture, execution, assassination of political opposition, of activists and of journalists. Here, for example, sorry. sorry. Well, I was just going to say it goes beyond that, Vanessa, because, of course, the, the UK government has been uh, certainly beginning with the, the height of the Syrian conflict, uh, demanding safety for journalists in conflict <laughs> zones and, and uh, you know, trying to, to take a lead on this. But you have to be the right kind of journalist. Yeah. And just yeah. since you mentioned Assange, I'll just mention it because uh, this broke just just before we came on air. Uh, and uh, so the court has approved uh, the extradition of Assange to the uh, United States now formally. Uh, so uh, so that is uh, that is not good news. So you know where where is the uh, where is the defence of journalists from the British government? It's nowhere to be seen. And you know I think you're right to point out the double standards and duplicitousness of if that's a word of uh, of Twitter. In, and this, of course, ran all the way through the uh, Syrian conflict as well, where we mm. saw uh, the, the extremists in Syria being allowed to tweet as much as they liked, while the likes of you and us and others uh, be having tweets taken down or, or accounts closed completely uh, and so on. So, so uh, sorry, there was just one final uh, graphic here. Yeah, and I mean, I was just going to mention a couple of, I, I mentioned Pablo Gonzalez, who was um, arrested in Poland 50 days ago. Oleg uh, Novikov, an opposition activist, as Gonzalo Lira tweeted out from Krakow, persecuted in the past by the Zelensky regime, was kidnapped on the 5th of April at 6 a.m. He's disabled, he, he only has one leg and has three young children. And as far as we know, he hasn't yet um, been uh, released. Of course, uh, Gonzalo Lira also has family and two children. The reports on Gonzalo Lira have been very sparse in Western media. Um, CNN Chile put out one report and then seemed to remove it from their website, but you can find it um, on the archive version. Um, also, um, Yuri uh, Tukachev, um, a neutral observer of the war in Ukraine, 
whose sole fault was that he did not cheerlead on the Zelensky regime but loved Ukraine, was kidnapped from his home in Odessa and apparently um, was tortured in the process, according to the, the Twitter thread that follows on from, from that announcement. Um, and I think, you know, if people want to know what to do to raise awareness about Gonzalo, I did try contacting the Chilean embassy in Poland, who, effect, who, who honestly was useless. Um, the Chilean Communist Party is being very reactive and is trying to help. So I would suggest um, contacting them. I will try to put something out either through UK column or uh, on Twitter as regards the addresses and telephone numbers for people to use. Um, but I would also suggest um, raising awareness here and writing to uh, parliamentarians here, you know, and to, to point out the sheer hypocrisy that someone like Gonzalo Lira can be completely disappeared, um, potentially tortured, potentially killed. We don't know yet. I mean, I'm praying not. I'm praying that this is a psyop to strike fear, for example, into the hearts of the independent journalists uh, there, like Patrick Lancaster, even like Eva Bartlett, of course, who, who has been a number of times um, to Donetsk and Lugansk in the past. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much for that, Vanessa. And just to reinforce the point about what we're really dealing with in Ukraine, um, several people over the weekend sent me this article from Nexus. Um, uh, a gentleman called Jacques Board, a former NATO military, uh, military analyst, uh, written a really um, good article. There's a couple of parts to it, so you'll have to do a little bit of searching. Uh, but basically, he's looking into the real origins of the war in Ukraine and the dangers of the uh, extreme right-wing um, Nazi system. And he points out that, of course, people have got to remember that uh, we've got the Ukrainian army and we've also got the National Guard fractions, which has scooped up a lot of these extreme right-wing people. So here is yet a, another qualified individual warning about what's happening. And uh, just to end, I, I was also sent this clip by a very large number of people, which is part of a speech that Putin made a little while ago. Um, and uh, I've just taken three sections out of it because they are so pertinent. Putin was saying this to a very big audience, a very diverse audience. We see that many Euro-Atlantic states, he's talking about the West, have taken the way where they deny or reject their own roots, including their Christian roots, which form the basis of Western civilization. In these countries, the moral basis and any traditional identity are being denied. National, religious, cultural, and even gender identities are being denied or relativized. The excesses and exaggerations of political correctness in these countries uh, indeed leads to serious consideration for the legitimization of parties that, quote, promote the propaganda of paedophilia, unquote. Um, so I'm going to say to me, this was unbelievably accurate analysis by Putin. Is this the real reason why he's now so hated by the Western establishment and uh, the people pushing those uh, political correct views? But he ends there by talking about the, the legitimization of parties that promote the propaganda of paedophilia. Let's put Putin's statement um, or compare it to the BBC reporting 
many years ago, this gentleman, um, Conservative Party whip Tim Fortescue, who says to the BBC camera that when MPs came to the whips with problems, which might include the abuse of small boys, um, we fixed it for them because they would then do as we asked. So we've got a political system which is fueled and, and uh, run by blackmail around the abuse of children. No wonder they're frightened of what Putin has to say at the moment. Mm. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, and that would be uh, that is very much needed. Uh, or you could uh, pick something up at the UK column shop, which is at shop.ukcolumn.org. But in any case, if you'd like to share any material you find on the various platforms, that would be fantastic. Well. Uh, what do we say? Uh, the MHRA has made a couple of announcements uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, first of all, here we go, Valneva. Uh, an approval has been granted af after the Valneva COVID-19 vaccine was found to meet the required safety, quality and effectiveness standards. Excellent. So that is approved. Um, so what are they saying about it? This is uh, uh, the first whole virus inactivated COVID-19 vaccine to gain MHRA regulatory approval. Uh, with this type of vaccine, the virus has grown in a lab and then made completely inactive so that it cannot infect cells or replicate in the body, but can still trigger an immune response to the COVID-19 virus. This process is widely used already in the production of flu and polio vaccines. And uh, well, we can say that that's going well, isn't it? Uh, because here we've got a report from a couple of days ago circulating vaccine-derived polio virus type 3 confirmed in Israel. Now, it has to be said that the majority of vaccine-derived polio uh, infections uh, around the world are of type 2. So this is a different one, it's type 3. Um, and uh, well, okay, uh, what, what's the situation that we have there? Uh, let's see, 24 countries last year had uh, uh, polio, uh, had vaccine-derived polio infections or, or outbreaks at least. Uh, we had 500 children paralyzed in 2020 and again in 2021. Uh, and so vaccine-derived strains emerge where children are unvaccinated or underimmunized, uh, allowing the live weakened virus uh, in the or, or sorry in the oral polio vaccine uh, to circulate and accumulate through mutations to revert to its uh, neurovirulent form and paralyze kids, according to various sources. But uh, the bottom line here is this is a vaccine escape that's going on. Um, and uh, so uh, we're now going to uh, encourage that in uh, COVID-19, perhaps by uh, uh, Valneva. But anyway, let's move on uh, because Moderna uh, have also had their spike vax approved for six to 11 year olds after meeting the required safety, quality and effectiveness standards. So I see a pattern here from the MHRA. So that one's approved as well. Uh, here's the wonderful June Rain who says uh, we have uh, in place a comprehensive surveillance strategy for monitoring the safety of all UK approved COVID-19 vaccines. And this includes and this surveillance includes those aged six to 11. So maybe I could welcome Debbie to the program and say, uh, if you're not already laughing, Debbie, uh, what are your thoughts on that statement from June Rain? Oh, where do I start? I mean, honestly, where do I start? And you know, it's just worth remembering that Valneva um, is, and, and I can quote, um, it's got a conditional marketing authorization. So that means it's only valid for one year. And the uh, definition of conditional marketing authorization is the approval of a medicine that addresses unmet medical needs of patients 
on the basis of less comprehensive data than normally required, the available data must indicate benefits that outweigh the risks, and the company should be in a position to provide comprehensive clinical data in the future. So yet again, we've got June rain giving us very, very cast iron promises of it's very safe, it's all perfectly fine, and we don't have the evidence. What can I say, Mike? What can I say? Well, I think if you won't say it, I'll say it. The whole thing is a scam and it's becoming very clear that the MHRA as the organisation is a scam and its claims to protect public safety is a scam. But um, you were getting quite excited, Debbie, because you had been invited into one of the MHRA's online Zoom board meetings and you'd, you'd got uh, a couple of very important questions. Um, so it appeared that the MHRA was actually taking you seriously. They'd invited you to join their online board meeting. Um, before we have a look at a video clip, tell us what happened. Oh, well, uh, it's very interesting to see what happens behind the scenes of an MHRA board meeting. Uh, clearly, there are people there in attendance because I saw rows of chairs with people there. Um, the board uh, invite questions from the public, but it was quite clear actually in this board meeting that things were working differently. So I got the impression that one of the questions that was possibly brought up at last month's board meeting, which was the closed board meeting, you remember the one that they said that we couldn't attend, was whether board meetings should be in the future made public. But quite clearly, it was more of the same with the MHRA, lots of self-congratulatory pats on the back, lots of thanks. Um, but my questions that I submitted via Zoom and I sat through the whole two hours, 15 minutes, and I was waiting till the end, till my questions were, were asked, nothing, absolutely nothing. And my questions were related to the agenda I made sure that on the agenda was patient safety. So my questions were, were completely linked to that, but they were not asked, uh, they were not answered at all. Well, perhaps uh, the MHRA is frightened of the fact that you're asking the right questions in the right way. I could certainly believe that's the case, but you were able to capture a little bit of the uh, video. This uh, video of the board meeting is not yet posted on uh, uh, the internet on YouTube. So this is, this is a fairly unique little clip. Let's have a look at the new style MHRA board meeting as they realise that they're now coming under public scrutiny. I think you've got an additional one you wanted to mention. Um, yeah, just to highlight, closely Medicine has an ILAP application. Perfect. And that's been already noted within the, uh, within the declaration there. So thank you for that, Paul. Um, can I also just just by way of sort of good practice, looking through the board papers and anticipating where they might be perceived. In the CEO report uh, on paragraph 2.5 on page 21 of the pack, it mentions some research work on polio eradication, but it also mentions funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in collaboration with Imperial College. So, um, so Raj, can I just check if you had any involvement in that funding from Gates? No, I haven't, Chair. Okay, thank no. you. And Graham, have you had any involvement in that work at Imperial College? No, no. Yeah. And, and also, during the, through the, throughout the um, CEO report, there's a number of mentions of NIHR, that's the National Institute of Health Research. Graham, I know you've uh, got a declaration as a professor uh, associated with NIHR. Can I just check that you've got 
had any involvement in any of the items that are mentioned in June's report? No, I'm involved in a, a different long COVID project, but not the one working with CRPD, uh, CPRD that's mentioned. Okay. So on that basis, then, I don't, I don't perceive there to be a, any conflicts of interest that would mean we'd need to exclude Raj or uh, Graham as far as those agenda items are concerned. Is everybody content with that? Okay, thank you for that. And Raj, I think... Well, there we are, Debbie. Clearly no conflict of interest because he's asked a few questions of the people who might have a conflict of interest and they've assured him that they certainly haven't. So, well, carry on with the meeting. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? Particularly as they're so closely aligned to Bill and Melinda Gates. Oh, they're, they're, they're hand in hand with Bill and Melinda Gates, as I'm sure we'll see um, from documents that, are, that we're going to show um, either today or in, in future programmes. And that was only one clip of the MHRA board meeting. I do have more, um, and I'm sure we'll be looking at those with scrutiny too. But you know, clearly the conflicts of interest in the MHRA are huge. We've got AstraZeneca on the board. We've got Raj Long, who used to be director of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We've got the chief scientists of Microsoft. Everybody seems to have their fingers in pretty much each pot, every pot. So conflicts of interest are a massive concern. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that, Debbie. Now, you were able to take a quick screenshot to prove that your question did go into that meeting. If we just pop this up on screen, uh, what you're looking at is the chat side of that uh, MHRA Zoom board meeting. Uh, it says, good morning, Debbie, and thank you for your question, which I've noted. And then there was a, a copy of the uh, first uh, question that you'd asked, when do, health, when do health professionals have a duty of care to inform the public of potential harms that have been detected through pharmacovigilance? That was your first question. And I'll just ask you again, was this question answered? No, and neither was the question that I asked on what the MHRA's definition of safety was and how safe does something have to be in order to be approved. Both questions were completely ignored. Right. But you've been pretty diligent with trying to get information out of the MHRA. And Alison Cave, the chief safety officer herself, sent you this letter, this reply to, to, um, to questions you've been asking. People can freeze this on screen, although the print's quite small. You should be able to read it all. But um, you described the reply to me earlier this morning as pure waffle. Do you stand by that as a description of what Alison Cave had to say to you? Yeah, I do, because they're not answering the questions. And the question very simply is when are, is this rollout going to stop? Because quite clearly, the amount of serious adverse reactions and the amount of um, deaths are going to go are going to increase. And we've now got all of these vaccines still now licensed with two more. Uh, by the way, coming, Sinovac, um, uh, no, sorry, uh, Sputnik and another one. So they're more and more coming. And yet, you know, for thalidomide, for example, if we cast our minds back there, the drug was stopped after 500 cases. We now have over one and a half million uh, reactions. We have 2,000 deaths and still these injections, monoclonals, antivirals and everything else that they've got coming down the pipeline are still coming. It's completely outrageous, outrageous, wicked. 
Yeah, I, th I think wicked is the best description. Now, just to emphasize this point, the MHRA is coming under pressure over accusations of conflict of interest, and quite rightly so. Um, you were sent this Guardian article uh, this morning, so we're bringing it up on, on screen. The Guardian saying medical regulator faces questions over board members' links to drug firms. Uh, well, that's a pretty appropriate headline. And the article, I think, is starting to ask, <clears throat> excuse me, at least some of the right questions. But we know the MHRA is squirming because on government's website, we've got uh, the statement that the MHRA are seeking views to strengthen conflicts of interest policy for independent advisors. So they're obviously coming under scrutiny and uh, we need more people to be asking about these very unhealthy relationships between the regulator and the pharmaceutical companies themselves. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, you know, the conflicts of interest and uh, Dr. Tess Laurie mentions con conflicts of interest uh, as well, um, because quite clearly these people should not be doing the jobs that they're doing. And if it was if it was in the real world with us, any of us, we would not be allowed to attend board meetings. We would not be allowed possibly to be employed with some people if we had certain interests elsewhere. So clearly this is, in my opinion, unlawful. But the board meeting was scattered with loads of, of, of very important information, including citizen juries and the yellow card biobank and they weren't interested in talking about serious adverse reactions with regards to the COVID-19 injections and indeed they didn't even mention Valneva once in the board meeting however what they did mention in the board meeting was the recent reports that have come out over the weekend with regards to sodium valparate um, and that has been given to pregnant women now this is an absolute no-no and so now there's an inquiry and June Rain did say that she was going to use the force of the law to deal with this. So she can use the force of the law with some drugs, but not with others. So, you know, the, the, the whole the whole board meeting was it was incredible. The 100 day mission, the 100 day mission everybody might like to be interested in isn't just for vaccines, you know, it's for therapeutics and diagnostic treatments, too. So pretty much everything coming down the line will be will be unwrapped, unrolled within 100 days. So a very interesting board meeting. I'd like to thank June Rain for inviting me. And I very much hope that the future board meetings will will remain on YouTube. But I would like to say to everybody, please, could you write to the MHRA and ask them where their February board meeting minutes are? because they still haven't been put online. And the closed board meeting in March, we don't have any minutes for that either. Right, I'm so gonna suggest, I'm gonna suggest there, Debbie, that this is because they know that the right questions are being asked. So they're trying to bury stuff, but let's move on to MPs. It's clear that although some MPs, we had Sir Christopher Chope with us a couple of days ago, he is clearly getting very, very concerned about what he's seeing. But we've got other MPs that clearly have no concept of what's really going on. And you've got an email here, um, which is from Maria Caulfield MP, where effectively she's saying no vaccination, sorry, no investigations are required. Um, just give us a little bit on the background to this email. Well, it's a letter, I think, originally. 
Yeah, it was a letter. And, you know, Maria Caulfield is the uh, Parliamentary Undersecretary for Patient Safety. So Sir Christopher Chope was going to meet with her on Monday. I'm very concerned. Maria Caulfield was actually laughed off of question time a couple of weeks ago because she was very closely aligning to uh, defending Boris in Partygate. But she's also a trained nurse. So I have emailed Sir Christopher Chope and asked if I might be able to have, a, I've emailed Maria Caulfield as well, to ask if we might be able to have a meeting because she's a trained nurse and I'm a trained nurse. And it seems as though we've trained in completely different systems when we haven't, we've both NHS trained, but it seems as though we've come from different worlds because what she's been taught clearly isn't what I've been taught. And everything that she's saying there is completely alien of course there must be an investigation an urgent investigation immediately and in my opinion with the immediate stop of all of these medications until an investigation has been thoroughly looked at okay debbie and just uh, just to end the segment really quickly um the daily mail coming out with the headline here which suggests there's even more reason for an investigation the mail is saying revealed fewer than half of people living in parts of London, Birmingham, Leeds have had their first COVID vaccine. So essentially, it appears that the um, what the public were told about the percentage number of people in the country have been vaccinated. This is not stacking up anymore. No. Um, and I saw a, a government chart. I haven't got the link for it, but I'm looking for the link for it, which would suggest that 41 percent of the population in England, I believe, are unvaccinated, which is very different from what they're telling us. Yeah. Okay. Well, quickly on this one as, as well, you've uh, had this article on your desk for a while. Steve Kirsch had written an open letter to Christy Grimm, the Inspector General of the NHS, and um, he's really hammering the system in America. So there's a, he's saying there's an overwhelming evidence of an enormous amount of corruption at the highest levels of the CDC, FDA, and the NIH. These activities are aimed at both deliberately suppressing any negative safety and efficacy data about the COVID vaccines and suppressing safe and effective treatments using widely available repurposed drugs and supplements. Just to correct, that's the HHS, not the NHS. Yeah, yes, this is all American yes, focused. That's right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, I just took some of the headlines out. So these are the sorts of things he's saying in the letter. I think there's 16 points altogether. The CDC and FDA are deliberately ignoring their own safety data that shows that the vaccines are unsafe. The CDC refuses to acknowledge that there are millions of vaccine injured people. Uh, clinical trial fraud is deliberately ignored. There's no cure for the millions of vaccine injured. Uh, it goes on here. The public is not getting a proper informed consent briefing. Uh, the rate of myocarditis is much higher than the CDC is telling people, and they know it. All attempts by dozens of us to find answers to our questions about vaccine safety and efficacy were deflected. And your point, Debbie, is that uh, these people, um, sorry, these criticisms of the American system would apply here in UK as well as criticisms of the MHRA and the Commission on Human Medicines. Yeah, absolutely. The MHRA are hand in hand in bed, if you like, with the FDA. They're closely collaborating with the FDA on Project Orbis, which is uh, cancer treatments. 
and they're also uh, closely aligned to them in the International Conference for Harmonization, which was another little uh, gold nugget that I got from the uh, MHRA board meeting yesterday. So really, they're both hand in hand. OK, thank you for that. And we'll just end on a positive note that uh, what day was it now? I'm losing track of time. I think it was on Monday. You and I had the opportunity to conduct a, an interview with Dr. Tess Lowry from the World Council for Health. Uh, we just bring the website up on screen so that people can go and have a look at that. Uh, this is the lady herself who gave us a really excellent um, uh, analysis of her concerns about what the World Health Organization is doing with the pandemic preparedness uh, treaties, which will effectively start to take power away from nation states. So, uh, Debbie, lovely lady, we are working to get that little interview up as soon as possible. And it's great to see the positive attitude that she had as to how people could tackle the system. Oh, it was an absolute breath of fresh air. And I'd personally like to say thank you so much to Dr. Tess Laurie as well. And I know that our audience will be absolutely delighted to know that we've we've had an interview with her, which which I know will be shown soon. But also just very quickly, the, the World Council for Health, I would just like to say that there are live um, live streams every Monday night with many experts, and she would welcome as many people to join the live streams. And also you can subscribe, um, it doesn't cost anything, I mean, you can donate if you want, but you can subscribe to a weekly newsletter as well, which will pop through your box. And also they're having um, a conference, better the Better Way conference in Bath on May the 20th to the 22nd. So if you go onto the World Council for Health website, you'll find all the details there, but well worth, well worth a look. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, okay, let's uh, just very quickly move on to this. This is Energy Live news and several oil firms secure civil injunctions to prevent climate protests is what they're saying. Uh, the oil industry, well, I'll, I'll just read from the, uh, the government's press release on this because uh, you'll get the idea. The oil industry has taken significant legal steps to limit protests which have been causing disruption to businesses and the public over recent weeks. This, of course, has resulted in uh, shortages in various at the pumps uh, around the country. A number of uh, key operators in the oil sector, including Navigator, uh, Thames, ExxonMobil and Valero, have each secured civil injunctions for their sites, uh, helping them to work with local police forces to minimize disruption to their businesses. Uh, and uh, well, let's just have a look at uh, the times from uh, a couple of uh, several days ago now, just stop oil activists, uh, activists cause fuel shortage. Uh, and uh, well, here they are, just stop oil. Uh, who is or what is Just Stop Oil? It's a coalition of groups working together to ensure that government commits to halting new fossil fuel licensing and production. And of course, they've been chaining themselves to gates and, to, and stopping trucks and so on. And this has uh, been causing the fuel shortages uh, that Brian was talking about on the news program uh, last week. Um, and But they don't say who these groups are that uh, form this coalition. Um, but the question is, who's behind Just Stop Oil? And we have to go to... Uh, to well, to this guy uh, and uh, uh, zero carbonista. This is Dale Vince, uh, Dale Vince OBE. He's a British green energy industrialist, a former New Age traveler. He's the owner of the electricity company Ecotricity, uh, and he is uh, seemingly behind them, though. Uh, but this, of course, is uh, really all about the police crime sentencing and courts bill 
this is in its final stages in Parliament at the moment. It's looking like it's very much like it's going through. Um, and uh, one of the four main bills that uh, we are uh, raising red flags over the uh, Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Bill is already an act, of course. Uh, the online safety bill we'll talk about in a second. Um, so this, as I say, is at its final stages. Um, and uh, well, YouGov claiming that uh, the policing bill that Britain support the proposed new police protest powers, um, I think that is uh, highly unlikely, although they're, I think, carefully crafted survey is producing the result that they wanted. I'll just remind everybody once again, if you haven't yet uh, read the uh, book, The Road to Kill the Bill by Joseph Boyd, um, if you haven't got that and read it, it's uh, a short read, but very well worth reading in order to understand how uh, these types of organizations are co-opted uh, by the government to pursue government policy as it suits them. Um, and I think that's what's been going on here. Uh, but let's just move quickly on to the online safety bill itself. Um, and uh, well, Nadine Dorries was in the uh, House of Commons yesterday at uh, 20 to 8 yesterday evening, by the way, because obviously Boris's apology took so long that uh, they had to push that back to later in the day. Uh, and so she got up to launch the second reading of the online safety bill. So let's just have a quick uh, listen to what she had to say. The bottom line is that by passing this legislation, our youngest members of society will be far safer when logging on. And I'm so glad to see James. I don't know if he's still here, actually. No, I think James. Oh, James is there. Hello, James Okaluja and Alex Holmes from the Diana Award here today. Yeah. And they are watching from the gallery as we debate this groundbreaking piece of legislation. We've worked closely with them as we've developed this legislation, as they have dedicated a huge amount of their time to protecting children from online harms. This bill is for you and those children. Yeah. They weren't the only representatives of various pressure groups all about protecting online, uh, protecting children from online harms. Um, so let's just bring this graphic on screen. Uh, the online safety bill uh, will protect children by forcing platforms under law to protect children from all sorts of online risks, ensuring platforms design their services to protect children, uh, driving big te uh, tech to quickly identify illegal content uh, such as child sex abuse, and terrorist content and remove it, uh, and putting in measures to shield children uh, from the content that isn't suitable for them, such as pornography. So it's all about protecting children, isn't it? Except, of course, it isn't. That's the headline that's being pushed in order to justify support for this bill. Uh, but this bill is a massive uh, attack on freedom of speech, as we've mentioned many times. And this is the issue. Content harmful to adults that falls below the threshold of a criminal offense. Uh, this will apply. Uh, and of course that is undefined uh, and MPs don't get the opportunity to discuss that. Uh, legal but harmful content, the agreed categories of legal but harmful content will be set out in secondary legislation and subject to approval. Uh, well, will it? Uh, but in any case, as we'll hear in a second, that approval probably is, is not uh, necessarily totally relevant. Uh, social media platforms will only be required to act on the priority legal harm set out in that secondary le legislation meaning decisions on what types of content are harmful but are not delegated to private companies or at the whim of internet executives. And this is the justification that's being used uh, in order to, uh, uh, you know, in the sense that, that at the moment people are saying, well, private companies are making these decisions. Uh, the government attempting to, to say that, that uh, this legislation will make that situation better. 
In fact, it's going to make it significantly worse. Let's see how the mainstream media is dealing with this. Well, the Times saying in an op-ed, it's not too late for ministers to see sense on the online safety bill. So perhaps that's a more positive response in the Times. But we've got football. Uh, they're absolutely delighted to see the online safety bill because they want to see uh, discrimination inside football ended. Uh, and so we can deal with all the other uh, freedom of speech issues and we're not going to worry about those because at least this is being dealt with. Uh, Christians, uh, uh, this is the uh, Christian Institute saying online safety bill fixes important problems but puts free speech in jeopardy. That headline not strong enough, but they do make some uh, decent points in this article. Uh, Nadine Dorries, of course, as we already mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, criticizing Silky Carlo for saying that uh, even more alarming is that the online safety bill is going to put online censorship like this on steroids. It would be state mandated and Dory saying nonsense. Well, of course, it's not nonsense at all. Silky Carly, Carlo is absolutely bang on. Now, uh, hopefully most people have seen the interview that we did with uh, Sir Christopher Chope MP last week. Um, he had some comments on the online safety bill uh, and, and he began by commenting on this in this little excerpt we're going to see on, on the issue of whether uh, of the fact that MPs don't get to, to help frame this idea of harmful but legal. Um, but he then went on to talk about the other sort of institutions which will effectively get statutory foundations as a result of this bill. Uh, let's just remind ourselves what he said. Bill, I don't think it's not just about the, the, the shaping of the definition, but the whatever definition is comes up with, who's going to interpret it? And how and, and who's going to hold those interpretations to account? Um, and you can just see the, the, the envisage the burgeoning bureaucracy, the delays uh, and all the rest of it um, over um, these issues. I mean, I've had my own it, it, issues with you know, there's, a, there's an organization called purports to be called full fact um, but it seems to be quite the reverse because um, they are happy to be spoon-fed any information from the, the government without challenging it for example that um, all the people who've died within 28 days of, of um, having covid are have died with covid um, and no, no questions are asked about that as to whether or not some of them would have died anyway from other underlying causes but as soon as um, I, I start suggesting that there may be something wrong with the um, vaccines uh, affecting some of the minority of people then um, all hell breaks loose and um, then you look and see that um, that that organization is is um, basically run by subscriptions from Google and, and other uh, large um, outfits and, and yet purports to be um, the, the, the witch finder general, really. Uh, and um, I, I think that we are entering into very, very sinister territory. And so, um, no, I, 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 sh I share very much your, your concerns because um, in the end, as they say about elections, it's not a matter of um, who votes, but it's a matter of who counts the votes. So I'll just end that segment by saying that if anybody is not yet engaged with their uh, so-called representative on this issue, you need to be, uh, because uh, between the, the uh, police crime and courts bill uh, and the effect that's going to have on real physical protest, and I mean, I'm not a fan of Extinction Rebellion or any of these other uh, climate change uh, activists at all, but the fact is they have the right to protest. 
And if so long as it's peaceful, they, they should have that right to protest. And if we decide that because we don't like that organization or any organization, um, that we are going to oppose their right to protest, then of course we're shooting ourselves in the foot. The same goes with the online safety bill. Both these issues, everybody should be 100% engaged on. Yeah, so spread the word, basically. Uh, spread the warning. Um, we. <clears throat> This will take a minute. Do we have time for this final little piece of video? I'd say so. Okay. Well, look, this this is about the uh, <clears throat> this is Grant Shapps, uh, and it's about the uh, he pushed it out on on uh, on Twitter. Sorry, uh, and it's about the half price rail fares that there are in the UK because this is all about the government uh, helping people with uh, experiencing problems with rising uh, cost of living and so on. Uh, but I just thought this was uh, a comedy show that we should end the programme with today. Hey, Rolling. I want to tell you about a great offer coming to you. It's the Great British Rail Sale, offering over 1 million advanced tickets to passengers with up to a massive 50% off. Why not take a trip to Edinburgh to take in the sweeping views from Arthur's Seat? Or if it's sea and sand that you want, well, head to Cornwall with its stretches of beautiful sand and crashing waves. Or visit the Lake District, the land of dancing daffodils and full of love from Wordsworth paradise. Or come down to London for a bit of retail therapy. You know, we've had two years of living life virtually. It's time to get real and visit our beautiful country. And cut. Uh, where's he going? Well, uh, hopefully nobody has uh, been violently sick over their keyboards at that. But I mean, Brian, <laughs> I was is close. it appropriate for the British government to be attempting comedy? I don't think so. But of course, what, what we're seeing is is the whole of the parliamentary system is being debased by their whole be behaviour and demeanour. We've got Boris Johnson's efforts with party during lockdown. But even with Nadine Doris there, she was talking in the house as if she was in in the school hall talking to a few children in, in the class and smirking and smiling whether the right people were present. This is designed to bring... Uh, people in positions of real responsibility down to a level where they become the cartoons that they take place in. Yes. So uh, to my mind, this is planned breakdown of, of the UK and its systems. And I think there's a lot more evidence to show it. Uh, we could also say, wouldn't it be easier to simply get the cost of rail fares down so that people could actually use the railways instead of the normal price without a 50% discount uh, being too prohibitive to a lot of people. Yeah, that 50% discount is lasting for four weeks, I think. So that's really going to have an effect. I, I, I did wonder whether the rail sale was actually the sell-off of the railways themselves because everything else seems to be uh, being sold out to the globalist corporations. But we'll leave that for another time. Done that, yeah. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the, new, of the news. We're going to say thank you very much to Vanessa and Debbie for joining us. And uh, a lot of information coming out. Please share what the UK column produces. This is why we produce it, to get information and facts out and about. And uh, as always, a very, very big thank you to people who are subscribing and donating to the UK column. We can only do what we do with your financial support.
Thank you very much. We're doing an extra. We are doing an extra. Yeah. We'll see, see you in a minute. few minutes. Thank you. Bye-bye.